Would you turn your Bible, please, with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. bow together in a moment of prayer. Our Father, we thank Thee for the privilege of being in God's house tonight and for the blessing of these songs, the Word of God in song, and just the pleasure of being in Thy presence. We pray that the Holy Spirit would move in people's hearts. And may the Lord's will be done as we wait upon Jesus to speak to our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 6, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Cretans to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring with him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the, mystery, for the ministry. We will not read the rest of the verses, though every verse in this chapter is chocked full of spiritual meaning and precious truths. But I want us to concentrate on the scene and the setting for verse 10. To me, verse 10 contained the 10 saddest words in the Bible. The 10 saddest words in all the Bible. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Paul is in prison in Rome. The time of my departure is at hand, he says. I have fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the course. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give to me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them who love his appearing. It's not how we begin the race, but how we close it that's important. Now, of course, we cannot close the race acceptably if we don't begin it right. But almost anybody can make a big splash at the beginning. I saw somebody dive from a diving from a diving port, diving what? Diving board, (laughs) a diving board at Camp Joy one time, and boy, they went like this and this and this and this, and they turned two or three flips. And they splashed, and the lifeguard had to go down after them. Now, anybody can make a big splash. 
It's how you finish the course that's really important. Paul reflects back on that day on the Damascus Road when he had a deep experience with the Lord. He was on his way to Damascus to kill Christians. He had papers in his pocket authorizing him to, in Damascus to hunt out and find and persecute and prosecute and to kill the believers in that city. But before he went to that city, he had been walking through the streets of Jerusalem and he saw a big crowd and he saw a young man a young man named Stephen standing on a street corner giving his testimony and Stephen had been talking about Jesus the prophet from Galilee and how he had been crucified and buried and was raised from the dead the people didn't believe that and he accused the people standing around of crucifying the Lord of glory and folks began to take their coats off and as young Saul stood over there they put their coats at his feet and he took care of them while they stoned that young man to death who was Stephen Stephen was one of the seven in Acts chapter 6 if indeed those were the first deacons then Stephen was one of the first deacons a man that left an indelible imprint on the lives of people oh my friend my friend, my friend, tonight. Let's place in responsible positions as men who lead us, men who are willing to do the first work of the gospel, that is getting the gospel out to others. That's our prime business. God never intended in any other way. That's the business of the Lord's church. And God never wanted us to elect pastors or deacons or leaders who were not soul winners, who were not first and foremost an evangel with a heart of soul winning. I thank God for some great, great deacons in our church. The times when this church has gone forward the greatest have been times when our men were men of faith. I remember a meeting we had back in 57 in the first unit. We were having a meeting determining what to do because we didn't have any money. And some of the men said, well, let's wait till we get some money. And one man, he's in this congregation tonight, said, we need not wait till we get money. Let's get a derrick. How much we got? We had $50. He said, let's get a derrick and go out there and start digging. And we put the derrick out there the next morning. And one of the first things that derrick did was break a water main. And water began to flood in there. But somebody came by and saw it. And they called me on the telephone and said, do you need $25,000? I said, we sure do. <laughs> Men of faith. I'll tell you, God wants us to step out on faith. Faith is the victory. Faith that is mixed with soul-winning zeal that says we must go forward, whether we have the money or not, whether we have anything else or not. It's not a matter of whether we can afford it or not. What does God want us to do? What is the will of God? Let's find it and do it. And Stephen was a man like that. And Stephen went out there pledging his neck. He stood there as a soul-winner unashamed before God and before his countrymen and before the Jews and before the other Christians I think in training union tonight we discussed why some adult Christians are a little bit of timid about giving their testimonies and one of the reasons was we're afraid of what other people will say we've heard people say well there they go again there's somebody giving his testimony we're, when, when will the service ever get over and we're afraid we're afraid of what somebody else will think my friend God never moves his work forward on the basis of people who are afraid of what somebody else will think. 
we must always do what God wants us to do, always and forever. And Stephen found out what God had wanted him to do, and he did it. He stood out there and just gave his testimony, and they stoned him to death. And while he was dying, he, he looked into the face of God, and he said, I see Jesus. I see Jesus. And he's standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, the Bible says when Jesus went back to the glory, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. But when Stephen sees him, he's standing. I think the Lord stood in honor of that first Christian martyr giving his faith for Christ. Now, listen, if they crucified the Lord, what will they do to us? They'll stone us. They'll criticize us. They'll be ugly to us. They'll talk against us. Beware when all men speak well of you, even within the Christian community. God does not want us to be so concerned about what people think, but what God thinks. There's a young man in our church that almost always, when he prays, he says, Lord, help us to love the praises of God more than the praises of men. And that's what we need, to love the praises of God. Find out how this is going to affect God and do what God wants us to do, regardless of the circumstances. And as Stephen gave his testimony, Saul heard it. And Saul's heart was greatly exercised. He didn't believe it. He breathed out threatenings against the church. And on his way to Damascus, he heard over and over again in his heart, I see Jesus. I see Jesus. I see Jesus. And he's standing at the right hand of the Father. And ten miles outside that ancient city of Damascus, he heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, who are you? Who are you, sir? And that voice said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And Saul said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And in that moment of surrender, Saul of Tarsus gave his heart away to a Lord who captivated all the great things of that, that intelligent mind. And I want you to notice that Saul was the Aristotle of his day. He was the Plato of his day. He was an outstanding man who had gone to the city of Jerusalem to study at the feet of Gamaliel. And if there had never been a New Testament, we might have heard of Saul like we heard of Plato or Aristotle or Demosthenes or some of the other greats of those eras. But praise God, God got hold of Saul. And the Lord changed the direction of his life. And now years later, Saul the missionary says, I am now ready to be offered the time of my departure is at hand. I've fought a good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the face. faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. And then he said, Do your diligence to come shortly to me, Timothy. I'm alone here in this Roman prison. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Demas went away from God. Demas went away from God. What a tragedy. Now Demas, I don't know whether he was a saved man or not a saved man. The scripture doesn't specifically tell us, though on other occasions Demas was a companion of Paul in the service of the Lord. But I want to present to you tonight the fact that sometimes a man who is not saved can go away from God and a man who is saved can go away from God. Sometimes the outward evidences seem to be the same, but the end result is different. 
And I speak tonight concerning two groups of people. Those who are the superficial professors and those who are the real possessors. I ask you this morning to help me preach tonight. And several people have put on this desk some reasons you feel why men go away from Christ. You know, the greatest honor in all the world is to be chosen to be a follower of disciple of Jesus. The great privilege has never been bestowed upon angels nor cherubs nor on any of the heavenly hosts. One would think that such a high and noble honor and position would be granted only to the elite or the deserving, only those who are clean and noble. Yet God's Word tells us in Romans 5, 8 that Christ died for us when we were yet sinners. And God has chosen sinners to come and be His servants. And those who would be leaders would be chief servants. Surely it is unthinkable that Christ would choose one of us and we'd say, no, Lord, I don't want to play on your team. When we were children, we'd elect captains of this team or that team or the basketball or the football or the king on the mountain or, you know, just any old kind of thing you wanted to have. And we'd have a captain, and they'd stand up here, and I choose you, and somebody else, I choose you, I choose you, and I choose you. How many of you have ever been the last person to be chosen? <laughs> All right, that's sort of something, isn't it? But you know, the Lord didn't choose us last. He chose us first. Before the council rooms of eternity, God placed his affections upon us and God has chosen us. And it's almost unthinkable that a person chosen by God would say, no, I don't want to serve you, Lord. I want to go away from you. I don't want to be what you want me to be. Well, why do men go away from Christ? Here are some reasons that were written on pieces of paper and placed here on my desk on this pulpit. Somebody said, sometimes people go away from God because we don't fear the fire of hell or we lose sight of our first love or the fear of what others may think. Somebody else says when problems come along, a new Christian turns to the world for solutions instead of to God, then the world draws them away from God. And someone else has said, Satan will try to tell us we need to get our life straight before we can accept the Lord Jesus Christ. And still someone else has said, people are rebellious by nature. When God says do something, we ask other people, saved or unsaved, and try to figure out if, the, if it's okay. But when something is wrong and inspired by Satan, we don't ask, we just do it without question. When the preachers and other concerned members of the church show scriptural passages from the Bible about the importance of regular church attendance, they get tired of hearing it because it interferes with their worldly things, because most feel that Walt Disney is more important than training union, and the Sunday night movies are more important, and some are afraid they might be asked to give more of their time and money. They can't attend church and give their tithe, but they do have enough for movies, for bowling, for golf, for booze, and other such things that are much more precious to them than the Word of God. Others haven't time for soul winning or doing anything for their church that they say they love because it interferes with their TV shows, their movies, their ball games, because their activities are more important than seeing a lost soul, a lost starving soul one to Christ. 
And then this person says, what have you done for Christ? If you die tomorrow for all these foolish things you now have to give an account for, how many souls have you told about Christ? How much have you done for your Lord? I don't know who wrote that, but that was like a sermon. I appreciate that. That's a good sermon. God bless you. And then someone else has written, the reason people go away from Christ is because of the wrong crowd, because they do not read the Word, because they do not pray. They get their eyes off the Lord, or they quit going to church. They quit giving to church. They quit being regular. And then someone adds, this happened to my life. This happened to my life. Why do people go away from Jesus? There are two groups of people who go away from the Lord. One is the superficial professor, and the other is the real possessor. The outward evidences may seem the same, but the end result is entirely different. And so as we preach tonight, I want to ask you to classify your own life and think through why have you gone away from Christ. If you're serving Christ less tonight than you used to, you're in a backslidden condition. Now, the service to Christ does not always mean outward activity. It sometimes is of the heart. But when our heart gets garrulous and complaining, something is drastically wrong. Homer Rodeheaver used to sing, If your heart keeps right, if your heart keeps right, there's a ray of sunshine in the darkest night. If your heart keeps right, if your heart keeps right, every cloud will wear a rainbow if your heart keeps right. And beloved friend, if you find it easy to wear a frown all the time, if you find it hard to sing a song, if you find it easy to complain, if you find it hard to compliment, if you find it easy to grumble and criticize and ridicule, and you find it hard to go up and say to somebody, I love you, look into your own heart. Someone may say, well, you know, I'm just not the kind of person that can go around saying I love you. If you get close enough to Jesus, you can. If you get close enough to Jesus, you can. I heard of a husband and a wife that were having a grumbling and a complaining problem. And the wife came to the preacher and said, you know, my husband never tells me he loves me. And I need that. And the preacher was talking to the husband. And he said, why, when we got married 40 years ago, I told her I loved her and I haven't changed a bit. I don't have to tell her every day. Now, my friend, sometimes we treat Jesus like that and we treat fellow Christians like that. We need to often say, I love you. When we find it hard, then there's something wrong inside our heart. Why do men go away from Christ? I want to present to you tonight what I believe are the scriptural answers to this question. There are many times we have backslidden hearts. In Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 5, why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. And in Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 7, O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do it for thy name's sake. For all our backslidings are many. We have sinned against thee. And in Hosea chapter 11, verse 7, my people are bent to backsliding from me. 
Though they called them to the Most High, none at all would exalt him. And in Proverbs chapter 14, the backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways, and a good man shall be satisfied with himself. Why do men go away from Christ? The Bible tells us there are several reasons. Turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 26. In verse 58, the theme, the scene, is Jesus on trial before Pilate. The disciples have been up all night with the Lord, and they have fled. Only Peter and John go with Jesus to see the end. Jesus is on trial. John goes in to the trial room, and Peter stands outside, warming his hands at the devil's fire. And in verse 58, the Scripture says, But Peter followed him afar off into the high priest's court, and went in and sat with the guards to see the end. And in verse 73, And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crowed. Peter was standing out, failing to identify himself as one of God's children, as one of the followers of Jesus. He was warming his hands at the devil's fire. The people there were jesting and making fun of Jesus. They were talking crude and rude and barnyard language. And they were talking filthy. And they were talking about the Prince of Glory. And Peter kept his mouth shut. And I want to submit to you, it's always dangerous to be in a crowd and fail to identify yourself. Whether you're at the factory, whether you're at school, wherever you are, when you fail to identify yourself as one of God's children, if you really are a child of God, then you're treading on dangerous territory. And Peter failed to identify himself, and after a while somebody came along and said, you're one of the followers of Jesus. No, he said, I'm not. Well, what else could he say? If he had been, he would have said something earlier. Somebody else came along and said, you're one of the followers of Jesus. No, I'm not. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even know the man. And after a while, someone else came and said, You're one of the Galilean prophet's disciples. Your speech betrayeth thee. And Peter said, No, I'm not. And he began to curse and swear. He said, I don't even know the man. Immediately, the cock crowed. And the eyes of Jesus and the eyes of Peter met. The Bible says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Because of public opinion, Peter went away from Jesus. Now, he was a disciple of the Lord, but he went away from the Lord in a backslidden condition. We had a man, young man named Charlie in our church in Guthrie years ago. Charlie got saved. He was a young teenage boy, about 16, 17. And he had a great experience with the Lord. He started coming on Sunday morning and Sunday night, and he was in training union. He was in prayer meeting, and we went out soul winning together. And he loved the Lord. Charlie, a little testament. I said, put that in your pocket. And I said, I want you to use it. Read it every day. And when you get on the train going to Georgia and you meet other young guys that are going in training 
You identify yourself. Tell them who you are and what you are. He got on the train the next day. Three weeks later, he was back in our city, but I didn't see him. He didn't come to church on Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesday night, and I went to look for him. I went to the front door and knocked, and they said he wasn't there, but the Lord said, you ought to go around back. So I went around back, and there he was going out through the woods. And I walked, walked back in the woods, and I said, Charlie, I want to see you. There's something wrong. And he wouldn't even look me in the eye. I said, Charlie, I, I missed you at church Sunday, Wednesday. I've been praying for you while you've been gone. What's the trouble? He came over and we sat and began to talk. He said, said, Preacher, I'm so ashamed to talk. He said, when I got on that train going to Georgia, there were some other guys on there and they were sitting over there playing cards. And he said, uh, I just sat over there and they invited me to come over and play cards with them. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. I, I don't sit here. And they said, come on, come on over here and play cards with us. Charlie said, after a while, I couldn't stand the pressure, and I went over and just sat with them. After a while, they started dealing out the cards. And Charlie said, I started playing with them. After a while, they brought out their money. He said, I didn't gamble. They brought out their beer. They started drinking it. They said, come on, Charlie, have a beer. Charlie said, I don't want a beer. I don't want it. And Charlie said, I didn't tell them why I didn't want it. I just said I didn't want it. They said, what's wrong with you, Charlie? You're tied to your mother's apron strings. What's wrong with you, a sissy? Come on, drink this. Charlie said, I couldn't stand the pressure, and I drank it. And I began to drink and play cards and to gamble and all the other things that go with it. And for three weeks, I've lived in hell. He said, when I got back to, to here, I didn't feel like coming to church. He said, preacher, I don't know whether I'm saved or not. We got out on our knees and prayed. And I showed him that verse in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he asked God to forgive him and to cleanse him. And the next week, he was at church. He made a public rededication, started serving God again. He went on with God. Why did he go away from Christ? Because of public opinion. A game of cards, a bottle of beer, public pressure, the opinion of others. Those things cause us to go away from Christ. And let me say this in passing. I do not believe that card playing and praying belong to the same man. Card playing, whatever kind it is. Years ago, I used to play cards. Even when I went to Camelsville College, a Christian college, I played cards. I was already a Christian. Matter of fact, I'd already rededicated my life to God. And somebody say, well, there's something wrong. You shouldn't play cards. I'd think they were fanatics, just like some of you think some people are fanatics. <laughs> I said, they're a bunch of fanatics. They're, say, they're crazy. And so one day I was sitting down on Hoskins Avenue in the home of Mrs. Opal DeWitt. And there were three or four other guys. We were all playing cards, and we had a big time going. I wasn't gambling. I wasn't gambling. I didn't gamble. I was already a Christian. But there was a man on campus, a young man I had been trying to win to Jesus. I'd talked to him again and again. I had a burden for him. Somehow I couldn't get through to his heart. But he was under conviction and had an openness to his heart. And I just claimed him for Jesus. And I didn't try to pull the shades. 
it, where we were playing cards. I didn't close. I didn't think I was doing anything wrong, so I just went on playing. Without my knowing it, that young man passed in front of our house that night, and he looked through the window, through the open shades, and he saw me in there playing cards. A few days later, I saw that boy again. I tried to witness to him, and he was just as cold as a cucumber. He absolutely closed, and I didn't know why. And I tried again and again, and I couldn't get through to him, and somebody came to me and said, Richard, you know that guy you've been trying to win to Jesus? He came by your house the other night and saw you gambling. And he said, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want anything of it. That boy's a hypocrite. Now, I won't tell you, I wasn't gambling, but he didn't know it. I was using a tool, and incidentally, the game we were playing wasn't diamonds, and so it was rook. And I was using a tool that was misunderstood by somebody else, and I got on my knees in a private place, and I said, God, more than anything in the world I want to do, I want to reach people for Christ. And if a little old game of cards will stand in my way, I ask you to forgive me, and I'll never play another game, and I haven't. If eating meat offend my brother, I'll eat no meat while the world stands. I'm not accusing you, I just felt impressed to tell you about that. Why do people go away from Jesus? Because of public opinion. There's another reason the Scripture gives why people go away from Jesus. And that is personal ambition. In Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16, And behold, there came one saying, Good Master, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep thy commandments. Keep the commandments. He said, Which ones? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell what thou hast and give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Sometimes people go away from Jesus because of personal ambition. I have another plan for my life. I've got something I want to do with my life. I don't want you to tell me what to do, Lord. I've got other plans for my life. I found this clipping, and I've read it to you before, but I want to read it tonight. I believe it's a blessing. It stirred my heart many, many times. A successful businessman gave the story of his life in these words. I was 17 years old one night when I reached a crisis in my life. Coming home from a Sunday evening service, I stepped into our city park and stood under one of the trees. While I was there, the Spirit of God manifested himself to me and said, I want you to be a minister of the gospel. But I answered, I cannot do that. I have no education. However, the Spirit of God insisted again, I want you to be a minister of the gospel. Again, I protested, my parents need the money which I am earning in the factory where I work. Time after time, the Spirit of God strove with me. Over and over, he called me to be a preacher. As often as he called, I answered, no. At last, as God wrestled with me, I made my decision and said, no, I will never be a preacher. In that moment, the Spirit of God seemed to leave me. I do not know how long I had been standing there, but I found that I was drenched with perspiration. It seemed there must have been a pool at the, my feet where the perspiration streamed from my body. That evening breeze felt cold, and I shivered went home in the dark. Never from that moment to this have I felt the Spirit of God strive with me as he did that night. God has seen fit to prosper me. 
I've built up this great manufacturing business. I've made millions of dollars. I've given away millions to churches and charities. But all of my life, I've been like thousands of young men and women at their lathe, their shop bench, their office desk, a mere slave to my desk and my job. I've never known, I've never done the work God had for me to do in this world. I taught a Sunday school class. I supported the church. But I never knew and I never did the work to which the Spirit of God was calling me that night in the park when I was 17 years of age. Personal ambition leads men to go away from Jesus. I have other plans for my life, God. Don't bother me. Why do you go away from God? There's another reason. There's another reason found in Matthew, the 13th chapter, beginning in verse 20. He that received seed on stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and immediately with joy receiveth it. Yet he hath not root in himself, but endureth for a while. And when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, immediately he is offended. He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word, and the care of this age and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. The going is tough. It's tough. It's difficult, and we go away from Christ. You know, anybody can follow Jesus when it's easy. Anybody can follow Jesus when there are no sacrifices. But when the going is tough, it's not easy. In John chapter 6, verse 66, and from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. There comes a time when if we do not yield to the will of God, we go away from the will of God. It's impossible to walk along on the way to Emmanuel's land, serving the Lord, and yet pulling back and refusing to give it all. There comes a time when if we don't put it all on the altar, then we get out of fellowship with God and we turn away and begin to go away from God. And where can I go when I go away from God? In the first Psalm, the Scripture says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of scornful. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. His tree shall be like, his leaf shall be like a tree planted by the waters, and so on. And everything he doeth shall prosper. But it says the ungodly are not like this. They are not so. For they are like the wind, chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. There comes a time in our life when we become like that to which we give ourselves. If we give ourselves to the movies, we become like the movies. There was a time in my life, even after I became a Christian, when the Hollywood characters were my chief heroes. A few weeks, a few months ago, maybe a year or so ago, some of the young people were sitting at a table in a restaurant, and we were talking about our heroes. And one man would say, this is my hero. Another guy would say, this man's my hero. Somebody else. One said, Paul is my hero. Another person said, D.L. Moody is my hero. And someone else said, uh, John is my hero. And somebody else said, Jesus is my hero. And we went on around. Now, these were people that were out and out for the Lord right then. Another guy said, Elvis Presley is my hero. Now, I want to tell you something. 
the young man that said Elvis Presley is my hero is not going on with God now. Now, nobody jumped on him and rebuked him and got all over him and got mean to him. He didn't quit then. But that was his hero. And whoever your hero is, you're going to follow. Whatever is your hero in life, you're going to follow. Whatever is important to you, that's what you're going to follow. What is important in your life? Who is important in your life? What is the summum bottom of your life? Who is the one that is more important than anything in your life? From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. There are three words used in the, in the scriptures, three words for the followers of Jesus. One, a disciple. Another, an apostle. Another, a Christian. Now listen carefully. A person can be a disciple and not be a Christian. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. A disciple is one who follows. Oh, you do not become a Christian by following Jesus. You may become a Buddhist by following Buddha. You may become a Mohammedan by, Mohammedan by following Mohammed. But you do not become a Christian by following Jesus. You become a Christian by receiving Jesus into your heart in which the regeneration of God comes about in your soul and he lives inside of you. Then you begin to walk with the Lord and follow him as a disciple. But a disciple who simply follows Jesus can go away and never come back. A person can be an apostle and not be a Christian. Oh, you don't mean that. I thought an apostle is one sent. That's right. In the New Testament, an apostle was one sent who had seen Jesus personally with his eyes. He had handled him. But we have a case in the New Testament of an apostle who went away from Jesus and never came back. Judas Iscariot. And I want to warn you tonight, you can be an apostle and not be a Christian. You can be a disciple and not be a Christian, but you can never be a Christian without receiving Jesus. And when you receive Jesus in your heart and he lives inside of you, then his seed remains in you and he will pull you along and tug at your heart on the way home. And when you're a Christian and you go away from Christ, there's a different end. And when you're not a Christian and you go away from Christ. I've known some followers who went away from Christ. I've known some disciples who went away from Christ. The Bible tells us about an apostle who went away from Christ. And I've known some Christians who have gone away from Christ. But I want to submit to you the end result is different. The end result is different. I hope nobody will go out of here misunderstanding this message tonight. I am not saying you can be a Christian and have Jesus in your heart and still be lost after you're saved. The Bible does not teach that. But the Bible does teach that you can follow Jesus and go away from him and be lost. And this is where the confusion in Christendom comes. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to really be a Christian? To be a Christian means to receive the engrafted Word of God inside of your heart and your soul so that He, mixed with faith, 
comes to spring up in your life, the Holy Spirit comes in and he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never, never. But you can follow Jesus and you can put on a front and never have him inside of your heart and you can go away from him and never come back. How do men go away from Christ? How do men go away from Christ? Well, their affections grow cold in your home life. You know when you and your wife are growing away from each other, the affections grow cold. So it is in the Christian work. The things you used to love, you don't love them anymore. Reading the Word of God doesn't mean as much as it used to. Spending time with God in fellowship with Him doesn't mean as much. Spending time with God's children doesn't mean as much. Fellowship with the people of God doesn't mean what it used to mean. And you begin to grow cold and away from God. And after a while, it's easy to visit the places of amusement that are questionable. Somebody said about this book, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. When you read the Word of God, God's Word moves in your heart. I had a precious experience this morning. A young man came in the service and he said, I'd like to talk to you a few minutes after church. And we talked for just a little while and prayed. He said, I lost the joy of my salvation. He said, when I, some time ago when I was first a Christian, he said, I used to read the Bible every day and I had such joy. And he said, I've neglected that and I don't have the joy. This morning he committed his life again to read the Word of God and the joy comes again when we read God's Word. You see, when we begin to leave these things off, then it's easy. It's easy to allow other things to get into our lives. One day I was preaching in Louisville at a church near Churchill Downs, just a few blocks from Churchill Downs. It was several years ago, and I don't know what month it was. Maybe it was near May. I grew up in Louisville. I know about that place out there called Churchill Downs. They ran the 101st Derby yesterday. I understand that somebody they didn't think won would win won. And uh, as I was preaching, I just felt impressed. It wasn't even part of the sermon. I just felt impressed to say, you know, I grew up in Louisville, and I know what goes on in this city during the Derby time. It's like Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Out there on 4th Street and 3rd Street and all there, there are all kinds of prostitutes standing there ready, just ready for the 100,000 people that come to Louisville. Booze and drink and everything else has its way and has its day. And gambling is wide open. They say you can't gamble legally, you can at Derby. And I said, that's a hellhole. And any Sunday school teacher, any deacon, anybody that wants to lead in the work of God that goes to those places will lose power. And there'll be no effectiveness, no luster, no strength in your spiritual life. After the service, some woman came down. She was mad as hops. She said, I didn't like what you said tonight. And I tried to be a gentleman. I said, well, thank you. She said, I want to tell you, I've been a Sunday school teacher in this church for 30 years, and every time that racetrack's open, I'm there, and you don't know what you're talking about. That's nothing wrong with that. I've never sinned. I've never done anything wrong, and I'm there all the time, and I don't like what you said, and I'm not coming back. And she didn't until Saturday night. And Saturday night, she came, and when the invitation was given, that woman walked down the aisle all broken up with tears. I, don't, I didn't know what she was saying to the pastor at the time, but after the service, she came up to me and she said, I want to apologize to you. 
She said, I didn't like what you preached other than I got mad at you. And I said, I was never coming back. And I went home and told my family that. But she said, I got under conviction. God began to deal with my heart. And she said, I just want to tell you I'm sorry. And if that thing is standing in my way of effectiveness and power, then by the grace of God, I'll never go back to Churchill Downs. She asked me to pray for her husband and her son who were not saved. We had a prayer meeting right there, and she went home. The next morning, Sunday morning, I will never forget it. That church had a middle aisle, and about third, three-fourths of the way back, I saw that lady come and sit by two men who were already in the service. She was a Sunday school teacher. She'd come out of Sunday school, and she came and sat by two men that were already in the service. And I saw them speak. And in my mind, I thought, I wonder if that's her husband, her son. She had told me about the night before. We preached and gave the invitation. When the invitation was given, I saw that big man step out into the aisle and walk down the aisle. And following in a little while was that other man. And they came down there. And after the service, I learned that that big man said to the preacher, Preacher, I don't know what happened in this church last night, but my, home, my wife came home a new woman. And she said, he said, she's different, and I want what she's got. I want to be saved. And the son said the same thing. That man, those two men, gave their hearts to Jesus Christ because that woman got something out of her life that was a stumbling block. I want to tell you, when you go away from Christ, it gets easy to go into little things that somehow the devil convinces you there's nothing wrong with. My friend, tonight God wants us to live as near heaven and still be in the earth as we can instead of as near hell and still be in earth as we can. Some people seem to love to court the customs of this world and follow the fashions of this world. God says he said we're to have none of it. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth from eon to eon into the ages. Men go away from Christ by little things, little things. In closing tonight, I want to speak of the consequences of going away from Christ. Thinking men think of consequences. What will be the result of this? What will be the end result? There are two ends that I speak of. First of all, to the believer, that one who is saved, God's child. When you go away from Christ, you can look for God to deal with your heart. There are four ways God deals with a sinning Christian. Now, sometimes people say, well, you Baptists believe that you can be saved and live like the devil and still go to heaven and everything's okay. No, the Bible doesn't teach that and we don't preach it and God doesn't mean it and the Holy Spirit doesn't know anything about that. I want to tell you, if you're saved, if you're saved, if you're really saved, if the Holy Spirit lives in your heart, then God will deal with you as you deal with your children. There are four ways God deals with a sinning Christian. Number one, God disturbs his heart. The Bible says, if my heart disturbed me, if, if I have the freedom of, of a good conscience toward God, it speaks of, if we, have the, if we listen to the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. There is a witness in our heart. The Holy Spirit deals with the believer's heart. And when a Christian sins, his heart hurts him. How many of you have ever sinned as a Christian and your heart hurts you? Nobody ever knew it, just you and God. All right, your heart hurts you. 
Now, if we don't listen to our hearts, see, if we listen to our heart, we come immediately back to the Lord. That's the reason we have to stay in contact day by day and pray without ceasing and confess every known sin day by day. But if our heart, if we will not listen to our heart, then secondly, God sends somebody to us. King David sinned. I'm sure his heart must have hurt him, but apparently he didn't listen to it. He kept it all secret. So one day God said to Nathan, I want you to make a visit to the king. And you go over there and tell him this story. And David, King, King Nathan, Nathan went over to the, the preacher. Nathan went over to the King David and he told him about the man who had a little ewe lamb across the road and this big landowner that had all kinds of cattle. And he, he said when the company came, the man sent over and got the little ewe lamb and he killed it and had him for dinner. What do you think about a man like that? And the king was ashen, angry. He said he should die. Nathan said, Thou art the man. God sent somebody to him. And what did King David do? He got on his knees before God and he said, Oh God, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil thing, restoring to me the joy of thy salvation. Then will I teach transgressors thy way and sinners shall be converted unto thee. You see, he was a Christian. God dealt with his heart. God sent somebody to him. Now if we don't listen to the one that, when God sends somebody to us and listen, if you're on the receiving line and God sends somebody to you, listen to them. Listen to them. If God says to you as a Christian, go talk to someone, you go do it. Do it. Now they may be wrong, but consider what they've said and pray about it and let God speak to your heart. The third way God deals with a sinning Christian, he sends the winds of affliction and adversity and vicissitude and problems, sometimes doctor bills, sometimes financial bills, sometimes home problems, sometimes home breakups, sometimes children problems, all kinds of problems come and God allows us to go through winds of adversity and affliction. Sometimes he may have to even put us on a shelf. Paul used to say, I beat my body into subjection lest after I've preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. God doesn't want that. And so God deals with a sinning Christian. He disturbs his heart. He sends somebody to him. Or he allows open winds of discipline and vicissitude. But if we will not listen to any of those, then God has another way. In 1 John 5, 16, there is a sin unto death. I do not say that you should pray for that brother who has sinned a sin unto death. Notice he's a brother. He's a fellow Christian. But he has sinned a sin unto death. That sin unto death, the scripture does not say that that takes him to hell. It removes him from this life. The reason we know that he doesn't go to hell is because the believer's sins are judged at Calvary. But these are his works, and God has to deal with them here and now. And if we will not listen to God's inner voice and the person that God sends to us and the winds of affliction and discipline that come, then God may have to have an early funeral. I think of a man in this county who used to interfere with the work of God in the church. Listen to this. He interfered with the work of God in the church. He was always garrulous, complaining, ran off preacher after preacher after preacher after preacher after preacher. Every preacher that ever went there had problems. Preacher would preach against whiskey. He'd get upset with him because back during the time of prohibition, that man was a bootlegger. He never did get it right with God. He never did get his heart right with God, but he was a Christian. His wife's still living. One day, a man was out driving a truck. And he had an uncanny accident, just a freak accident, just like that, taken out into eternity. My friend, you better not deal against God's servant. 
you better not do it. Or against God's church and try to tear it up and hurt it. Brother Houchins tells the story of a couple that used to be faithful in church in this county. They seemed to love the Lord. They taught Sunday school, were faithful. And then going gets got a little bit tough and they bought a grocery store. They ran it fine for a while and they started opening it on Sunday. Beer came back into our area. They began to keep their store open on Sunday. They put beer in it. The preacher went by to see them one day and said, what is this you've got in your store? Oh, preacher, you know, we've got to make a living. Just got to make a living. I suppose some people would be glad to live in hell so they could live a li- make a living, get a little bit more money. He said, we've got to live, make a living. The preacher said, no, you don't have to make a living. You just have to be faithful to God. You have to give an account to God. You better get rid of this beer and close your place on Sunday and come back to church. You haven't been to church for a long time. You, you're a Sunday school teacher. And you haven't been coming. Oh, preacher, you don't know what the problem is. You just don't understand. Preachers understand a whole lot more than you think they understand. They understand what the devil does. Time went along. One day, the son of that couple was out on Barren River with another man, and the boat capsized. Both of those men died, 17 years old. Telephone rang. The preacher went, and the woman said, Preacher, preacher, my son is dead. My son is dead. Oh, preacher, he's dead and he's lost. I've sent him to hell. She cried and went into hysteria and shrieked. They say at the funeral, at the grave, she tried to get down in the grave and get her dead boy in her arms. They had the casket open there, tried to get him out of the casket. She was almost out of her mind. She said to the preacher, I sent my boy to hell. I sent my boy to hell. He was lost. He was lost. Six months went by. One day she picked up a revolver and destroyed herself. A Christian, there is a sin unto death. And my friend, you cannot sin against God. As a Christian, you get by with it. And what about those who have never been saved? Oh, they can go on and on and on, and everything seems to be all right. Years may go by, and then one day, the doctor puts his stethoscope down on your heart, and he hears it. ebbs away. And this book says it is appointed to men once to die and after this the judgment. And out in eternity the man who has rejected Jesus Christ and has gone out into an eternal separation from God, there is no second chance forever and forever and forever. If you're here tonight and you've never been saved, don't go on away from God. And beloved, if you're a Christian, don't leave God out of your life. 